Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam. Pharmacists to care. And good morning to you, and thank you so much for joining me. My name is Kathy Kayla, and I will be your host for the next hour on this Discam Medical Monday. And uh, yeah, we've got a very special guest for you today. You know, we speak to the best in the business, uh, whether you know professors of specific conditions, specific parts of the body. Um, I thought, you know what? Let's get in a surgeon who will tell us what your surgeon wants you to know. So if, uh, you know, your surgeon could have a conversation with you before um, something happens or before you have to go in for the surgery, what would they tell you? So uh, I've invited into studio Dr. Alan Wolovitz, and he is a general surgeon. We're going to be talking about things your surgeon wants you to know. Uh, if you would like to weigh in, if you've got any comments, if you've got any questions, and I'm sure there are going to be lots and lots of questions, then uh, this is how you get in touch. You can send a text on 34519. 34519. Those text messages are charged at 1 Rand 50. You can also uh, WhatsApp on 0621482374. And uh, those are free. You can send voice notes on that as well if you like. All right. And uh, on that note, I say good morning and I welcome Dr. Alan Wallowitz. Hi, Kathy. Yeah. Nice to be here again. How are you? I'm good. Thank God. <laughs> what has your surgeon been telling you? All right. So, <laughs> okay. So I was actually thinking about it. And, uh, you know, a general surgeon, you've got to be an expert in quite a lot of things. Yeah, don't that, you? that's true. In yeah. a lot of different systems in order to be able to operate. I mean, do general surgeons operate anywhere? Well, on they, any part of the body? I mean, could you do eye surgery? Well, I could do it, but uh, I wouldn't do it nowadays. But um, okay. but uh, we do operate on all areas of the body, or although we we there's some areas that um, uh, I wouldn't touch at this at this stage. Yeah. Okay, but otherwise, I mean, technically, you could operate on yes. on anything from That's a broken right. bone to, you know, eye surgery. Technically, That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> you did yeah. say you trained yes. in it as yes. well. Yeah. Um, all right, so. We're talking about different things that your surgeon wants you to know. Uh, something that we cover a lot and we're just seeing more and more people being diagnosed, and that's with breast cancer. It's, uh, yeah. So tell us what our surgeon, you, would want us to know about breast cancer or about the breasts in general. Maybe we should start with the, with the body itself. So um, essentially... Um, uh, Breast cancer has become um, very, uh, very common. It's one of the most common diseases, and it affects uh, uh, women mainly, although it does affect men as well. And um, it's one. It's um, it's a disease that um, that if it's detected early, um, it can be treated very well, and the results are excellent. However, if it's uh, if it's detected at a later stage, then the, um, the results or the long-term survival are reduced dramatically. Even, even if it's detected, if it's, uh, you know, at, uh, what's it, stage four? Stage four breast cancer, I mean, can somebody recover from that? So I don't think you recover from that. You can manage it and it can be treated. 
but the chances of a cure are extremely low. What are the and different stages? So, well, there basically are, are, are four stages. Um, the, f the first stage is where the tumor in the breast is, um, is just in the breast. The second stage is when the lymph nodes under the arm are, are involved or, or there's tumor spread to the lymph nodes. And the, um, the third stage is when the, when, the, um, when the disease has spread into the neck. And the fourth stage is when it's disseminated. That can be, it can, the, um, the cells can disseminate to different organs in the body. So it could be the lungs, it could be the kidneys, the liver, it could be the anywhere. It can go anywhere. Anywhere that your blood is traveling, basically. That's true. Is that is that how is that how it's spread? It's it's At spread it's spread through the through the lymphatic system, uh, and it's spread through the blood. So the, um, the when it spreads through the lymphatic system, it affects the lymph nodes in the axilla or in the neck. And uh, when it's spread through the blood, it normally goes to either liver, lung, uh, or brain. Hmm. Absolutely fascinating. Like I, I never thought before how cancer... I always thought that it, it was spread from cell to cell. You know what I mean? Uh, kind of like, a, like the rungs of a ladder. I never thought of it actually being something that is free traveling at that stage in your body that, that is in your blood. So very interesting. So what happens is that um, the tumor grows and they grow into the lymphatic channels or blood vessels. They infiltrate the the uh, those channels and and then they 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 go in the blood and they implant in different organs. And um, once they implant there, then they slowly grow and they are those. Um, it's very difficult to detect those, and those um, what are called metastases, until they reach a certain size. So that's that's one of the reasons why we give chemotherapy, even though, for instance, um, there is no evidence of disease spread. Very often, the, we give chemotherapy to try and sterilize or neutralize the cells that are not uh, apparent. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Okay, so is it possible to prevent breast cancer? You know, we hear about genetic factors. We we hear about what's it called? Is it BRCA? BRCA. BRCA, the BRCA gene, mm -hmm. which is uh, very, very dominant in Lithuanian Jewry specifically, um, our community. I mean, it's a... So is there a way to prevent it over and above genetics? Because there's obviously nothing we can do with genetics unless we are opting for, uh, what's it, an addictive uh, mastectomy. mastectomy. Yeah. So first of all, the, um, the uh, BRCA gene only affects a very small percentage of the people who develop breast cancer. I mean, if, if there's a family history, then it should be looked for. Or if it's um, diagnosed early in someone, it should it should be looked for. But uh, it's actually only a small group of people who are affected by the BRCA. Most people, it is random. And um, the uh, I don't know of anything that is actually preventative. That uh, according, you know, there's no diet or there's 
is nothing that we are absolutely certain uh, that causes breast cancer. Yeah, there's no magic pill. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you could read a newspaper article, and today it says, you know, tomatoes are brilliant, and then tomorrow it's like, don't, don't ever eat tomatoes. I mean, we, we live in such a schizophrenic society yes. where often the information coming to us is, you know, very contradictory, you know, with a lot of treatments as well. Okay, so um, talking about diagnosis, because you did say, say that early diagnosis is absolutely key to survival. Um, yeah, mammograms. So I think uh, I think um, we should start before that. Before okay. that, so I think um, uh, women sh- should have an awareness um, of the of their breasts, and that um, they should examine them um, uh, regularly. And uh, and if they fi- if they feel something suspicious, then they should uh, have it seen to, or let someone have a look at it. Yeah. So I think there should be self-examination um, uh, by women themselves, um, and the best time to do it is like um, uh, when they're lying in a bath. You know, they're relaxed, and then they can feel, um, and it's easy to feel. Then they should, uh, and they get used to feeling what is normal for them and what is not normal for them. Yeah, and also it depends on the time of the month as well because a woman's breasts during ovulation is going to differ That's to when it. she's premenstrual to after That's her it. period. So, uh, yeah, it's it's also important to, to do that. Yeah. yeah, when I was, I actually asked an expert recently, actually, how often should, should women be checking their breasts and men actually? Mm. Like once a month. What do you mean? <laughs> you don't need to make an appointment with them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? If you if you have to, I mean, you you should be monitoring because how else are you going to know what's normal if you're only checking once a month? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, so it's regular checks. It's regular checkups. Do it and weekly. Do it every second day. You know, like I said, you don't have to make an appointment with your breasts to do it, but just do it. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so then, then, so then, um, then of course, uh, you need to look at your um, your family history. So, if there's a a family history, um, then you 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 need to go for screening at an earlier age. So, if um, a parent or or another sibling has had a, a diagnosis of a breast carcinoma um, at an early age, then you you as the relative need to start checking, let's say, 10 years before that person was diagnosed, 10 years earlier than at what age she was diagnosed. Wow. Okay. And um, the, the diagnosis, as you know, there's, um, there's mammograms and there's mammography and um, MRI scanning of the breast. That's how we, we look at uh, try and make the diagnosis. Why are so many doctors opting for ultrasound rather than ma- than mammography? Well, first of all, um, in younger women, where the breasts are quite dense, then um, mammography is not very good, and uh, and ultrasound is uh, is is good at um, for younger patients. But um, as as they get older, then mammography uh, becomes a better um, technique. Okay. Um, and also, I mean, some people are are frightened of the radiation that uh, mammography uh, um, 
gives to you. Yeah, it's becoming quite yeah. controversial. Yes, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. All right, but you should. You say that you should still do it. How frequently? So the the the, the frequency originally was about was was it was recommended that it should be done yearly, but now the recommendation. <laughs> Um, is that uh, mammography should be done every second year, and um, and uh, the starting time is also um, it should start at um, at age forty, although in um, in someone who's got a family history, or, um, then it should start at an earlier age. Okay, but then it wouldn't necessarily be mammography; it would be an ultrasound. Ultrasound, yeah. Anyway. Correct. Okay, so uh, there you have it. Early diagnosis is key. All right, can we move on to? Can, can I just say yes. one thing? Yes. Uh, I mean, it's not always dependent on the on on um, a test like a, an ultrasound or, mammog- or mammogram. Sometimes, if you're suspicious of something, you can just go go to your doctor, and um, and he can examine the breast. Just examining the breasts by someone who's used to examining the breasts. They often can make the diagnosis um, straight away. Right, and also breast cancer doesn't always manifest as a lump. Um, sometimes right. it could be um, on it could be on the nipple, it could be or the what's it the areola. Yeah, the areola, that's correct. Um, where you know you could get like a crusty. Um, uh, What's the word that I'm looking for? It's an eczema. It's an (laughs) eczema. Like an eczema. An eczema that, on the the areola. And that that should also be checked out. Yeah, that's called Paget's disease. So it's normally on the the actual nipple. Yes. What causes that? Well, it's, um, it basically is a breast cancer that starts in the the breasts and and the cells travel down the ductule, the ducts to the nipple and they cause like, um, like a eczema looks like an eczema on the nipple, and um, so they don't ex- often they don't have a, a lump; they just have this chronic eczema on the nipple. And um, the only way to diagnose it then is to do a biopsy of the nipple. Wow, that's interesting. Okay, so there you go. Any anything crusty, any uh, eczema on your nipple, male or female, go and check it out. Yeah, you can't just assume that it's a it's a dermatological condition. Yeah. Go and do it. Okay. Um, can we move on? Sure. To some swellings of the neck. Because lots of things, you know, you can get a pain in the neck. I've met a couple of those. But uh, <laughs> swellings in the neck. So, essentially, swellings on in the neck, uh, if someone develops a swelling in the neck, they should... Uh, um, get it seen to because it may be problematic and the common causes of swellings in the neck either it's an enlargement of the of the thyroid gland or it's an enlargement of the lymph nodes in the neck okay so just while I'm on it if you can feel lymph nodes I mean lymph nodes often get swollen and you can feel lymph nodes um in the axilla, that's in the armpit, and in the groin. It's very difficult to feel other lymph nodes that are sitting in your chest or in your abdominal cavity. So if you do get swellings in the 
groin regions or under the arms or in the neck, then um, then that needs to be uh, seen to and uh, a diagnosis needs to be made. So um, thyroid swellings are, are they occur in the in the central part of the neck, and um, and they can either occur on the in the on the left or the or the right side, just just to the left or the right of the trachea. And there are many many causes of thyroid swellings. Some of them are are not um, are not uh, serious, and some of them can be very serious. But either way, you should have a check it out. Anything could, could your GP do that, or do you need to go and see a specialist? Well, I think you can start at a GP, and uh, and the GP would, um, in most cases, he would refer you to a, a specialized if surgeon. Necessary. Yeah, to to make a, a diagnosis of what the swelling is. How important is it to get a second opinion? If you get a diagnosis for something, do you think that it's important to get a second opinion, or just go with your first opinion? And I'm and I'm asking because yeah. I know people who will always get a second opinion as a matter of course, you know. Yeah, I look. I I, I personally don't think that um, every diagnosis uh, needs a second opinion. Sometimes it's it's pretty clear what the problem is, and um, when there's any doubt, or if the surgeon or or the specialist is himself not sure, well then it's then it's worth getting a second opinion. But I, I wouldn't get a second opinion on every single thing because I think it um, it sometimes leads to confusion, and uh, and then the patient doesn't know where, doesn't know where he stands. Doesn't always mean to say that the second opinion is better than the first opinion, you know. So so I think it sometimes leads to confusion and anxiety, uh, you know, of the patient. Yeah. Okay. All right, so swellings in the neck. We've uh, spoken about thyroid. Go and get it checked out. Start with your GP, okay? The other thing is lymph nodes. Now, for all the mommies, yeah. can I just say that I even remember when I was a when I was young, and I used to wear junky earrings. The minute you get an ear infection on your earlobe, you're going to find that your glands underneath your ears are going to be swollen. That's your body trying to fight infection. That's right. So for the mummies, I wouldn't take like, schlep the kid off straight away to the doctor, you know, if, the, if that is the case. If you know that your child's ears are infected, and I'm not talking about internal infection, if I'm talking about the lobes, if they've got an infection from the earrings. So just give it a few days and just see and just keep it clean and surgical spirits and all of that and just try and help it along. Just, you know, just a cautionary word because we know. So the most common cause of swellings of the lymph nodes in the neck is reactive, whether it's reactive to an infection in the earlobe or whether it's reactive to um, a tonsillitis or a, a generalized viral infection. Could be um, allergies as well, an allergy to, for example, perfume. Well, yeah, I suppose so. But it, it's a re, it's a reaction to something. So those swellings normally are, they often are diffuse. You know, they mean they affect both sides, yeah. and they and they will disappear within a in a within a few days. So you don't really worry about the reactive nodes. Okay. It's normally when you've got a a single 
node or single group of nodes, and they are, and and the swelling is persistent. So I don't think you need to be re- hyper reactive, and you don't have to see someone straight away. But if a swelling is persistent, then it normally means that there's a problem. All right, I've, I'm speaking to Dr. Alan Wallowitz. He's a general surgeon, and uh, we're talking about things your surgeon wants you to know. And if anything has come through very, very loud and clear, it's early diagnosis is key. So anything that's wrong in your body, go and see a GP. Coming back, we're going to be talking about the gastric system. We're going to be talking about gallstones and gallbladders, colon cancer, appendicitis, IBS, it's irritable bowel syndrome, also inflammatory bowel disease, reflux, but uh, we also want your questions. So why don't you send us a message? Send us your questions on 34519. That's uh, the text line. Those texts are charged at 1 Rand 50. Alternatively, you can also WhatsApp on 062-148-2374. This is the Disco Medical Monday. My name's Kathy Kayla. Thank you so much for joining me. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam. Pharmacists to care. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Kathy Kayla. This is the Discam Medical Monday, and uh, speaking to the top experts, the best of the best. So uh, today, talking about things your surgeon wants you to know, we've invited into studio general surgeon Dr. Alan Wallowitz. Uh, we've spoken about the breasts. We've spoken about swellings in the next, in the neck, and uh, if you've got any questions that you would like to ask Dr. Wallowitz. You won't even have to pay for the consultation. Right. We're not charging. We're not charging, right? No, we're not charging. So, uh, yeah, send us, a, send us a message. 34519, that's a text line. And uh, you can sign your name, not sign your name, whatever you want to do. And those texts are charged at 1 Rand 50. Also, you can send us a WhatsApp on 62 That's the WhatsApp number. And... Uh, yeah, send through the, your questions, you know. Okay. Um, let's talk about the gastric system. Firstly, every, every person seems to be on, on some kind of PPI today. It's a proton pump, inhi- pump inhibitors. That's like, uh, you know, your Nexiums or your um, even Tums, I think, is a, is a PPI. Um, you know, the generics, I think it's Trustan... What, whatever it is, it's anything that's going to stop your body from producing the acid um, in your body. So, yeah, why are people having such problems with gastric system? Well, I think um, no one really knows, but I, my feeling is that it's um, it's li- it's lifestyle, that it's it's what we're eating, how much we're eating. Um, I think that's what's causing this like epidemic of gastroesophageal reflux. I mean, the primary um, disorder is that um, the sphincter at the junction between the esophagus and the stomach right. is not functioning So it's almost properly. like a little purse, you know, if you think of a purse string, that's what it is, and it's got like an elastic, right? I mean, if you think that's of like right. a purse with an elastic around the top, a little sack with an elastic around the top, but that elastic starts becoming a bit more flaccid. It's not, it's not as tight as it, as it used to be. Well, that sphincter is controlled by nerves, and it can, it can 
open and closed. For instance, um, when you swallow something, then as the food goes, water goes down the esophagus, then that sphincter relaxes and, and allows the fluid or food to get into the stomach. And then it should close afterwards so that what's sitting in the stomach doesn't reflux right. up it back into it. But in some people, especially those who have hiatus hernias, that that sphincter doesn't doesn't function um, properly. What's a hiatus hernia? So hiatus hernia is when the stomach, which is meant to lie in the abdominal cavity below the diaphragm, moves through a defect in the diaphragm into the chest or part of the stomach. So you have part of the stomach sitting above the diaphragm. Gosh, so th- so that sounds painful. It's a, it's, a, it's a hernia through the hiatus, which is this, this, like a defect in the diaphragm. Okay. It's not painful. It just causes okay. reflux. Okay, because now your the the end of your stomach is higher than the sphincter. Is that correct? I mean, I'm watching your your hand movements, yeah, and how you're explaining yeah. it yeah. is almost as though you know if the stomach is like a bean shape, yes. right? And the one side of the bean yes. is the say, okay, so say the the left side of the bean is where your sphincter is, yeah. and the right side of the bean is where your you know that part is up into your um, into your diaphragm, it's going to be higher than the sphincter, and I understand why it would cause gastric reflux. No, not. I don't think you've got it uh, okay. total, but it uh, it basically uh, it comes in, and sometimes the esophagus now is uh, concertinaed, so it's sort of uh, um, it's a bit tortuous the esophagus. So if you say, so you were saying that that sphincter yes. that closes to the stomach. Yes. That that is controlled by nerves. Yes. So, what is the relation between the um, between gastric reflux and stress? I don't think anyone can because because the nervous system is hugely impacted by stress, and that's why that's why I ask. So, I don't think anyone can tell you for certain that stress is uh, causes reflux. I don't. I don't think that's. Uh, but maybe it might be, but I can't tell you for certain. A lot of a lot of um, stress-related problems manifest as gastric problems. So people, I think the the acid secretion is higher. They seem to have more acid in their stomach. They um, they have they develop uh, more um, gastritis and uh, an ulceration. But it's it's not just stress. Yeah. I mean, stress is part of it, but it's n- it's not only stress okay. that causes it. All right. So, um, yeah, the gastric system and acid reflux. So, how do we reduce acid reflux in our bodies? So, what can we do? Is there is, are there certain exercises? Is there is there a way that we can do it that can repair that sphincter? Can't repair the sphincter. <clears throat> Except with a with a major operation, oh. which which um, I don't think is a good idea in most cases. So, the thing that you can do is that um, you can learn to eat uh, smaller amounts, because if you eat smaller amounts, then the stomach's not full and you can have less reflux. In addition, um, you can um, 
most of the reflux occurs when you sleep at night, when you're lying flat. So if you elevate the head of your bed, then um, when you're sleeping, you will reduce the reflux into the esophagus and reduce the damage to the esophagus. Elevating the head of your bed as opposed to sleeping with more cushions or pillows. Yeah, I think I don't think that's uh, good enough to just put because it doesn't tilt your body. Oh, it lifts it, your head a bit, but it doesn't really tilt your body. Okay, all right. So I think your your bed has to be a little bit, and then you're using gravity to to drain the whatever refluxes into the esophagus drains back into the stomach. Okay. Because most most times that um, the the damage is done at night because you, when you're asleep you're unconscious and the acid is in, is lying in your esophagus and you don't do anything about it. Well, you can't. You're sleeping, right? That's yeah. right. But when you awake during the day, if you feel it, something, you'll swallow something or you'll take an antacid and you'll do something about it. Is there, is there a preferable position in which to sleep if you've got acid reflux? You know, sleeping on your right side, your left side or on your back? I don't think so. I think as long as, as, long as, you, as, long as your upper part of your body is higher than the, than the, than okay. the lower part. All right. Yeah. Um, gallstones. What causes gallstones? So Are gall- we finished with reflux? No, there's, <laughs> a, there's a lot, a lot more. A okay, lot let's more. talk about it. Let's so talk we about finish it. it off. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. So um, I've spoken about um, um, the the posture, and then there's diet. Certain foods are cause more reflux than others. For instance, if you have um, gassy drinks, if you drink, if you eat um, refined uh, flour or hot spicy foods, then you're going you're gonna to get more reflux. If you have alcohol or caffeine containing foods, it's going to affect the sphincter and it's going to produce more reflux. So certainly your diet. There's something so unfair about that, you know, is that the, alco- that the uh, alcohol and caffeine containing drinks you know it does all this damage but then something absolutely ghastly like green tea for example yes. that you know supposedly has all these benefits but it doesn't do undo the damage you know sure, sure. where's where's the <laughs> where's the fairness in that okay and um then the other thing that uh, that you can do is um you can lose weight that uh, if you lose weight, then it, there's less pressure on the on the abdominal cavity, and there's less reflux. And uh, and then of course there's the medication, the the proton pump inhibitors, which um, will reduce the acidity of the fluid that refluxes up the esophagus. So it doesn't stop the reflux; it just reduces the acidity. The pH of the, the body. The pH, yes, that's correct. Isn't that quite a dangerous thing? To reduce the pH of the body, because well, our, our body's got these natural systems yeah. um, that, you know, um, what's it called? Homeostasis. It is homeostasis, right? Correct. That uh, that regulate, you know, what our body pH should be and what everything should be. I don't know. Just uh, I'm just asking. I'm asking for so, a friend. <laughs> okay. So it, um, you know about how safe these things are. If you if you are altering the pH of your body, it's not altering. It's altering the pH of the acid in the stomach. 
but it's not our not of your body. No, it won't affect your body, uh, and and they are relatively safe uh, uh, drugs. Well, they you must be if, they, if they're really prescribing for babies, Nexium. Yeah. Yeah. But they shouldn't that tell us that there's something wrong? If babies who are not overweight and babies who are not stressed, and, I mean, if they are on Nexium, why are babies being prescribed Nexium? I mean, what is, what is actually happening in our lives? What is wrong with our lives? What is wrong with the food that we're eating if, uh, if kids need Nexium. Does it make sense to you? Do you question no, these things? I do, question, I, do, I do question them, but, um, but I don't know the answer. I mean, it might be that, um, I mean, babies m- may have had, had reflux in the past, but we just weren't aware of it. And um, I'm not so certain, um, how, you know, whether it's doing the baby any good, you know, having Nexium or not, then I'm not certain. But um, but it seems to be that a lot of babies are refluxing. They may have been refluxing all the time, but we just weren't picking it up. Oh, there might be more case of better diagnosis yes. versus the, you know, that uh, the acid reflux or reflux disease is is becoming more prolific. Okay. Babies are always. Oh, that's very. They're always difficult. <laughs> yeah, colic. <laughs> all right. Um, can we just talk about the esophagus for a minute? Sure. So there are certain <coughs> diseases of the esophagus as well. Sure. Um, that can be caused by acid reflux. That's correct, yeah. And uh, the esophagus can also get damaged. You can get ulcerations and you can get all sorts of things happening there. What can you do about that? I mean, is there surgery to fix that? So you're right that uh, acid does damage the esophagus not in all people but in some people it does and uh, there are varying degrees of um, of damage um, however um, that's why when we do a, a gastroscope we do biopsies of the of the lower esophagus so you can tell whether the cells are becoming abnormal if the cells are becoming abnormal then um, you can get a condition called Barrett's esophagus. So Barrett's esophagus is where the the lining of the lower esophagus uh, is changed. And that bar- that area of Barrett's esophagus is prone to de- becoming malignant. So um, the first thing is you don't want to... You want to treat your reflux early so that you don't develop a Barrett's esophagus. However, when you when you develop um, a Barrett's esophagus, that has to be monitored very carefully, and um, with biopsies and, and repeated scopes. And when it when it reaches the stage that the cells are pre-malignant, then then you have to do something about it. And what can you do about it? So there there are different things you can do about it. If it's if it's very early, then you can there are techniques where you can remove the the lining that lining because it's just affecting the lining or the mucosa so you you just you can remove that lining with some techniques um, and um, and when the epithelium grows back it will should grow back normally hmm. but Isn't if it really miraculous eh? but if it if it uh, if it's if it's uh, more advanced that when you've really got like a 
a cancer in those in those cells, well then you, then you have to have like a surgical excision of part of the esophagus. Would you know if those um, if those cells are cancerous without having a uh, what did you say it was a gastroscopy? A gastroscopy. No, you can only tell. You can only tell. There aren't any symptoms. Well, you can have you just have your reflux symptoms. In fact, uh, a lot of people with Barrett's don't have some don't have very uh, severe symptoms. So you can't just rely on your symptoms. Once, once, once you're having difficulty swallowing, then it either means that there's a, a growth there already, or that the acidity of your in your lower esophagus has caused a, a, a stenosis or a scarring. It's narrowed the esophagus. Mm. Yeah. The body is absolutely miraculous. How uh, it can heal and, you know, you can take out whatever's poisonous and it can grow back and you can all be okay. Sure. I really, I love that. Okay, um, we need to move on because there's lots of other things that we need to talk about. Gallstones, for example, staying with the gastric system. Um, What causes gallstones? So... The the gallstones are caused um, or occur because um, the bile that your liver makes is transport, transported down the the bile duct and it's stored in the in the gallbladder. So the the gallbladder is actually just a, as like a sac. It's a storage organ. So that um, when you eat something, then the gallbladder contracts and the bile is sort of squirted down the bile duct and it mixes with the food coming down in the duodenum and the small intestine. So some people genetically, I think, their um, their bile is supersaturated with certain substances. So when it's sitting in the in the gallbladder, then it precipitates out because there's stasis there. And then, then that's how you form gallstones. And um, the problem with gallstones is that um, they they may be completely asymptomatic. That means you you won't even know that you've got them, or when or they can block the opening of the gallbladder, or can travel down the bile duct uh, and cause symptoms like severe abdominal pain or jaundice or pancreatitis. So basically, that's. Uh, that's that's what happens with the gallstones. So if you don't know that you have them, I mean, then you just carry on your life as normal. I mean, it's not going to really affect you, is it? You know, even if you know that you've got them, yeah. let's say you've had an ultrasound and they, uh, for whatever reason and they pick up gallstones, because that's the way we pick it up with the ultrasound, then, um, then provided you're not having symptoms, then we leave them alone. Yeah. And we only sort of suggest that you have treatment once symptoms develop. Can certain medications call, cause gallstones? No, not, I'm not aware of no? that. Okay. No. Uh, what's gallbladder disease? So gallbladder disease, most gallbladder disease is related to stones. Oh. So that means that um, you, you get an infection when the stone obstructs the outlet of the gallbladder, the pressure builds up, you get infection in the wall of the gallbladder and you get what's called a cholecystitis, which is very painful and, and uh, 
and uh, it can be dangerous. Um, you can get, for instance, a, a, a cancer of the gallbladder, but it's very rare. And um, I mean, when you get it, it's it's a it's a very dangerous condition, and it's difficult to treat, and it presents late. But thank God, it's a, it's a rare condition. How are Dr. Wallabas? How are gallstones removed? Is it always only through surgery? You know, they've tried. Um, you know, gallstones are not the same as kidney stones. You know, kidney stones they can um, you can um, you can take um, uh, a sonar, an ultrasound, and you can blast them, and that breaks them into pieces. Yeah. And uh, but gallstones, they've tried it with gallstones. They've tried um, tried it doesn't work, and um, and. Uh, so um, they've also tried just opening the gallbladder and removing. Uh, they're opening the gallbladder and removing them, but then once you, if you don't remove the gallbladder, then they recur again. So the treatment it's for gallstones is you remove the gallbladder. So then with the stones, and then the bile is now flowing persistently down the common bile duct. And because it's there's no stasis, then you don't form stones. And what's life like for somebody who doesn't have a gallbladder? Like, are they more susceptible, more vulnerable to so, certain diseases, conditions? Yeah. So most people, most people, they, um, they, their life goes on as normal, and they don't have really any side effects. Some people have an intolerance to fatty foods, and um, and some people have like. Uh, they can develop uh, diarrhea, but it's it's very rare. So they they, yeah, they're they're minimal. Minimal, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's uh, it's it's rare to get a problem after cholecystectomy, but uh, but um, uh, yeah. All right. Want to talk about uh, colon cancer? We're going to be doing that right after we uh, hear from our sponsors, Discam, and. Uh, if you've just joined us, I'm speaking to Dr. Alan Wolovitz. He's a general surgeon. We're talking about things your surgeon wants you to know. We've spoken about breasts. We've spoken about swellings in the neck. We've spoken about the gastric system and gallstones and gallbladder disease. Uh, we've spoken about reflux. Coming up, we're going to be talking about colon cancer and appendicitis. Do you know what side of the body your appendix is on? Quick poll, 34519. Do you know if it's on your left? Or on your right. Don't Google it. I want to know. <laughs> this is this is a quick poll. So three four five one nine, and uh, yeah, let us know. That's a quick poll. Do you know what side of the body your appendix is on? Your left or your right? Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam Pharmacists to Care. And uh, thank you so much for joining me. My name is Kathy Kayla. This is the Discam Medical Monday. Thanks, Discam. And today talking about things your surgeon wants you to know. My guest is uh, Dr. Alan Wolovitz. He's a general surgeon. We've spoken about breasts. We've spoken about swellings in the neck. We've spoken about the gastric system. We've spoken about reflux. And uh, if you've missed any of that, you're going to have to go to highfm.com and go and download the podcast or take a listen to the podcast right now though i want to talk about colon cancer um firstly 
diagnosis because you you said right at the beginning and something that I hear again and again and again is that early diagnosis is key whatever your condition is you know a stitch in time saves nine what does that mean doesn't mean it means that you should fix whatever is wrong now because if you don't it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse so uh, let's talk about diagnosis all right colonoscopy should everybody be having colonoscopies? Because whoever's not having gastroscopies is having colonoscopies. And some of those lucky people are having both. Yeah, all the time. Can, <laughs> Talk to I, me, what is a colonoscopy? Can, can I, before, I just wanted yes. to say something beforehand. So I think what we've got to understand is that um, there's like an epidemic of colon cancer. It's one of the most common cancers around. That's the first thing. An it's, epidemic. Yeah. Well, it's, it's. Do we have statistics? No, I don't. I can't, I can't give you the statistics. Okay. I don't know them offhand. Okay. Secondly, is that um, the problem with colon cancer is that it's um, it presents itself. If you wait until it presents with symptoms, then you very often miss the boat. So in the early stages um, of colon cancer, you've got no symptoms. So if you wait until you've got symptoms, by the time you, 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 want, you get a diagnosis, you've probably missed the boat. Then you're in, already in a stage three or four colon cancer. So you've got to be proactive in the diagnosis. Um, the, um, the, 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 sign, the symptoms that you should look out for with colon cancer include like, like change in your bowel habits. If your bowel habits all of a sudden have they been regular and normal over years and all of a sudden there's been a change in your bowel habits. That's the one of the symptoms. Secondly is um, is if there's any uh, rectal bleeding. Um, thirdly, if you are anemic. Is there a distinguished... Um, should you distinguish between rectal bleeding and blood in the stool? You can't really distinguish. I mean, you, when 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 you've got rectal bleeding, yeah, you don't know where it's coming from. You don't know if it's coming from a little hemorrhoid right in the anal canal, or if it's coming from higher up in the colon. Yes. You know, obviously, the higher up it comes, the darker it sort of. Uh, presents itself the dark darker color but you can't really tell so then anyone o- over the age of 40 who, who has rectal bleeding should have a colonoscopy because you ca- you can't really say that it's definitely a hemorrhoid if they under the age of 40 then you can most likely assume in, m- in most cases that it's not a, a colonic carcinoma okay um, okay, so you said blood in the stool, yeah. change in your bowel habits, diarrhea or constipation, uh, abdominal cramps and abdominal distension, and development of anemia. Those are the those are the things that you should watch out for. Why development of anemia? Because um, very often you might have a growth in the colon, especially on the right side that is bleeding a small amount, but it's not evident. You can't see it. 
your stools are look unchanged and you don't notice it. And over the years, then that keeps on bleeding and you normally present with tiredness and anemia. So anyone who has tiredness and anemia needs to be checked that they're not bleeding from somewhere in the in the gut, either the upper GRT, that's the stomach and esophagus, or in the colon. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay, so colon cancer, how is it treated? So, um, can I can I do the diagnosis first? Oh, I thought we had done the diagnosis no, no, through no, colonoscopy. No, no. So, okay. So, um, <laughs> so, as I said to you, is anyone um, over the age of uh, forty who's who's um, who's got rectal bleeding should have a colonoscopy. And in addition, um, people at the age of fifty, even when there's no symptoms or no family history, should have a, what's called a screening colonoscopy. Um, and it's important during uh, colonoscopy because often you see little polyps, which are little benign growths in the colon. And um, those polyps, over many years, can develop into malignant growths. So part of the po- colonoscopy should be to remove the, the polyps and stop the natural history of the development of a of a colonic carcinoma. Sure. All right. So how is it treated? So the in 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 most cases the 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 treatment is a, a surgical removal of a segment of the of the colon. You don't remove the whole colon in most cases, you just remove a segment and um and then depending on the stage of the tumor then uh, you decide whether the patient's going to have any chemotherapy. So if you pick it up early and it's a stage 1 or an early stage 2, then most times you don't need to have any other treatment other than the surgery. But once the lymph nodes are involved or if it's spread to other organs, then in addition to the surgery, you're going to need some form of chemotherapy. Yeah. Um, a little bit earlier, I said, let's do a quick poll. How many people know what side of the body the appendix is, left or right? And when I go through all of these messages, all of our listeners say that it is on the right of the body. So our listeners know. They're educated. Yeah. That it's on the right of the body. So well done, everybody. Yeah, I just I can't go through all of the names because there's lots of SMSs coming in through competitions that we're running and all sorts of things. Okay, so thank you very, very much for the poll. But everybody's saying that it's on the right of the body. How do you know if you have appendicitis, an inflamed appendix, which can be life-threatening? Yeah. I mean, isn't that what killed Harry Houdini? I don't, I'm not sure about Houdini, but it can be very dangerous. So, um, so most times it presents... Um, um, it's a very it's a very common condition, and uh, we see it often at the change of seasons, like in spring and autumn. There's like a, a really? rush of uh, appendicitis, and um, so it generally presents with um, upper abdominal pain. It starts as upper abdominal pain, uh, which lasts for about a day or so, and then it settles on the right side, and um, it is associated with uh, fever. Nausea, vomiting, um, and anorexia. They don't want to eat. Uh, 
and um, it can make you very sick, especially if you if you don't get it sorted out quickly. Is the only way to to sort it out quickly via surgery, or can you go on antibiotics and that will sort it out? What is the role of an appendix? What is it meant to do in our bodies? I don't think anyone really knows the role <laughs> of the appendix. All right, so is, really is, is surgery the only way to fix it? I think it's the only effective way, being a surgeon. But, I mean, some people have tried uh, an, uh, antibiotics. I mean, it's been there a lot of trials about it, and they found that um, you can treat appendicitis with antibiotics, but in the long term, the complication rate is much higher, and you tend to get uh, trouble um, later on yeah. by just treating it with uh, uh, antibiotics. So still the conventional treatment is appendicectomy. And what about tonsils? Because tonsils could are also, you know, for a long time doctors also didn't know what tonsils were for. And so, you know, used to whip them out in two seconds. If you didn't go for that surgery, then you'd find that you'd have recurring tonsillitis. Uh, now, doctors are a little bit more circumspect when it comes to taking tonsils out. Yeah, that's true. I can't really talk about tonsils, but I know that they've become much more conservative. And uh, I think with appendicitis now, with all the diagnostic tools available, that um, the diagnosis is uh, correct. Uh, if you diagnose appendicitis and it's correct, you should take out the appendix. In the old days, they didn't have these diagnostic tools. So, oh. so a lot of people had their appendixes out for normal appendices because they just had pain in, in the right iliac fossa. <laughs> but uh, nowadays, we are quite certain when we go to theater in, in most cases, and, uh, and it's, uh, the, the operation is uh, necessary. And it's quick as well. It's quite quick recovery as well, isn't it? Isn't it is quite quick. A, isn't it quite yeah. fast? Well, not always. No, like no, half no. an hour, 45 minutes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But I had, a, I had a, an appendix last week. It took me three hours. Really? Yeah. Why? It was just a difficult one. What music do you listen to? <laughs> listen to the monitors. <laughs> oh, you don't listen to music no, when you're operating? No, no, okay, no. all right. <laughs> just had to throw that in there. My guest has been Dr. Alan Wolovitz. He's a general surgeon. Dr. Wolovitz, thank you very, very much for coming in today. Unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to talk about all the other things that we wanted to talk about, but uh, maybe we can get you back soon. Thank you very, very much. And listen, to you, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for participating in the poll of uh, which side of your body does your appendix lie. Who knew that so many people knew that? Who knew? Anyway, thank you very much. You God bless you. Stay well. I'll see you same time, same place next week. Bye. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care.